from the intersection of Sunset Boulevard and Pastry, Minnesota. Moved all over. Maine. Event. Status. Radio. With your host, Mr. Beverly Hills. 90210 and the Dirty Dog Darcy. Welcome back, everybody, to another edition of Main Event Status Radio. I am the Dirty Dog Darcy, joined today by one of my friends, one of the guys I listen to every week on the Still Real Duo show, Captain Obvious Trey Dent. How's it going, Captain? I'm doing good, and I've never actually heard you refer to yourself as the Dirty Dog, Darcy. I like that. It, it, it takes me back to like some old school, you know, mid south junkyard dog type atmosphere. I, I like that. I need a better nickname. I think Captain Obvious is getting kind of played out, actually. I love the nickname of Captain Obvious, and I've talked to a few of my corkers at work about you know being on your guys's podcast and other podcasts, and they do love the nickname Captain Obvious. Well, you know, I, I it was actually people don't know this. It was actually a radio nickname I gave myself uh, back in the old days of Sirius Satellite Radio when I would call in to different radio shows. I didn't want to just be like, "Hey, this is Trey from North Carolina," because that that got you know gets kind of forgettable and people don't remember you as much when you call in with just a generic name. So I'm a comic book nerd, and I always thought that would be a great nickname for a comic book character, kind of a parody and. I just took it and ran with it, and it stuck, and it's. I've been using it for about six years now. So I kind of think of it. I know I wanted to get you on to talk about the Monday Night Wars since I, I pretty much grew up with the heyday of professional wrestling. I was born in the late 80s, so I pretty much grew up with the whole Attitude Era, and I was, I think, like 12 or 13 when WCW was bought out, so I felt like, especially with you living down in the South, I felt like you'd be the... One of the better guests to come on to talk about the Monday Night Wars. Well, see, I grew up, I was born in the late 70s, so I'm old uh, by, most, by most people who listen to podcast standards. You know, for me, the, the, the birth of the Attitude Era, the start of Monday Night Raw, going through that whole time was my high school years. So it was weird for me because, you know, when you're younger, you can talk to, you know, when you're in elementary school and you're in, in middle school, you can talk to your friends about wrestling and nobody really judges you. But then when you get into high school, it's all about status and being cool. And at first, the wrestling was not cool when I was in high school. But then, you know, as the Attitude Era progressed and you got Stone Cold and you got DX and you got the NWO, it became the cool thing. And all of a sudden, I was kind of the cool kid for knowing all this stuff. I know you, I know you kind of mentioned it before, but I thought we might as well get into it. What were your initial memories and thoughts when WWF brought their product to Monday Nights for Monday Night Raw? You know, like I grew up uh, watching, uh, you know, Titan. Uh, th- I think it was like Thursday Night Titan, and it was like a talk show. They had they had Vince McMahon and Lord Alfred Hayes, you know, in a studio, and they'd bring a guy in and sit him down and talk to him. I remember Junkyard Dog coming in, and you know, Sergeant Slaughter and some other guys from the '80s, and then you know they'd have a tape match from like Madison Square Garden or uh, you know somewhere in like you know Toronto, and it'd be you know, Mr. Perfect versus, you know, some local jobber. And that was what every match was until you got to a big event, whether it was Saturday Night Main Event or something else. When Raw came on and they went to this whole, like, live approach or, you know, a week taped approach, it was exciting because the matches got a little bit better. You didn't see as many jobbers in the ring. 
you know, and it was a, a way to kind of feature your product and bring it in more into like a modern era and get away from that cartoony approach and that Johnny Carson approach that they had throughout the 80s. I'll kind of talk about you know, wrestlers and wrestling from the 80s. Do you remember when guys like Hulk Hogan and Macho Man jumped over to WCW from WWF in the like 93 to 95 era? Yeah, and it was really weird because, you know, the production value. Growing up in the South, I was always a big NWA and then WCW fan because a lot of the guys I grew up watching in Mid-South would transfer over to WCW because of the proximity of, you know, Oklahoma, Louisiana, going to Atlanta. It was much closer tra- or commute for guys to do that. You know, there were guys, Jake the Snake, Roberts, Ted DiBiase, who went to WWE, but a lot of the, you know, underground guys, the guys like, you know, uh, Dr. S. Steve Williams and the fabulous Freebirds and Terry Taylor, you know, originally they went to WCW. So watching WCW, the production value of the show was so much less than it was in WWE. So when you saw Hulk Hogan or Macho Man show up in WCW, it was weird because it was like they were still like on a, like, a bad kids afternoon set. I mean, they had the sliding doors that were like mechanical looking and supposed to look like, you know, armor or something. And, you know, out walked Hulk Hogan or out walked Macho Man. And it was still, it was weird because, you know, like this guy, these guys are huge, but the show looked so small. It kind of diluted it a little bit. It made it look kind of cartoony. And that's what made you still kind of gravitate to WWE because they still had a little bit more realism in their show appearance than what WCW had. Did you watch the first few episodes, or I guess first few years of Monday Night Raw before WCW started Monday Night uh, Monday Nitro? Oh yeah, I mean from the first episode, I was hooked on Raw. I mean, I loved the small. I mean, they did they did from that small uh, Manhattan. It wasn't the, it wasn't the Manhattan Center? Yeah, it was, something. Yeah, it was Manhattan Center. Manhattan Center, yeah. So you know, watching from the small Manhattan Center, it, it it was really more intimate looking. I mean, the crowds were really lively. You know, there was Vince and and Macho Man and Rob Barnett, who I don't think he's done anything since he got kicked off of Raw. But it was kind of funny having like that stand-up comedian try to make jokes about wrestling, and he really didn't know what he was talking about. So, but the the first few shows were like it was really really intimate. I mean, you know, all the shows you had seen on WWE before they were taped in like large arenas. So you know, to see it in the much smaller context of the Manhattan Center, you know, kind of got you hooked right away. Then then did you watch uh, Nitro when it first came came out came to TV in September of ninety five? Um, you know, honestly, I, I think I did. I, I really couldn't tell you much about it. I think the first one was done in Minneapolis, wasn't it? Yes, it was at the Mall of America. <laughs> and I've been there, and it's a beautiful place. I love the Mall of America. There's You can buy anything there, so, as you know. But, yeah, like I, I remember watching it, but it was still like I was still, I guess, a little more WWE on primetime TV than I was Nitro because, you know, the guys on Nitro, it was still – I don't know. I, I know people give WWE crap for their bad gimmicks because they had a ton of them. I mean, Bastion Booger, you know, and, and Damian Demento was in the first main event of Raw. I mean, guys like that. It was still cartoony, but you still had your Shawn Michaels, your Bret Hart, your, you know, Steve Austin coming out of the ringmaster gimmick. There was still a little more realism than t- flipping over and watching Hogan fight the faces of fear, you know, and, and stuff like that. So, like, Nitro wasn't must-see TV as what Raw was at the time. Yeah, because I felt like Nitro was must-see TV right around the summer of 1996 when the Outsiders jumped over and, I guess, invaded, quote-unquote, WCW. And when 
Hulk Hogan finally turned heel that people wanted to see, seeming for a few years. What do you remember your initial thoughts when Hogan? I guess when the Outsiders jumped ship and when Hogan turned heel. Well, for me, like I knew, I knew Nash was leaving, and Kevin Nash at the time was my favorite wrestler. I loved Diesel; he was the best. And part of it was because I was a Shawn Michaels fan, and you know, Diesel was Shawn Michaels' best friend. You know, so you know, I, I knew those guys were friends, and so. But Scott Hall, I didn't, you know, we didn't have the internet as much. I mean, everything was on dial up. And so, you know, I'd be at my local grocery store, like re- combing through the magazines of like PW Insider, you know, trying to find out what's going on. Like I used to go through and read results from house shows because I was such a junkie. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm fighting off a cold, like I told you earlier. So every now and then you'll, you, well, you might hear me cough. That's, that's completely fine. But, um, you know, when when Hall jumped to WCW, you know, a lot of us were like, wow, is this legit? Is WWE really going to invade Nitro? We didn't you didn't really know when Nash showed up. I kind of knew he wasn't under contract anymore because that's why he lost to Undertaker at the previous WrestleMania, which pissed me off because I wanted Nash to win. Um, but it was exciting and it was different. It was something you hadn't seen before. And, you know, everybody says, oh, we were all wanting Hogan to turn heel. We were it wasn't really you wanted Hogan to turn heel. You just wanted Hogan to do something different and kind of change his character up. And, you know, when Bash of the Beach 96 happened and Hogan, you know, dropped the leg on Macho Man and joined the NWO, you kind of knew right then this was something different and, and scary. But to me, the funny part was always that, you know, Hall and Nash could hold off the entire WCW you know, locker room with baseball bats. Yeah, because I watched uh the I watched the first few episodes of the Monday Night War series on the WWE network over the week and then I yeah, I just watched the first episode and the second episode which was about the NWO and I, I think it was yeah, Nash that they were interviewing and Nash even mentioned that 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 they can hold off, you know, up to a dozen of the best WCW superstars with just Hall and Nash with baseball bats. And how that they how they felt that like that was pretty silly that two guys can defend can fight off half the roster when the two guys just have a pair of baseball bats, you know. And and I kind of correlate that to you know even TNA now. Like you know TNA will have a guy from WWE say Rob Van Dam. We'll use Rob Van Dam for an example. Rob Van Dam comes into TNA and beats their world champion. And <clears throat> excuse me, AJ Styles. You know, an interview I heard with him, he was always like. You know, to me, it was bad business because here's a guy from WWE who was basically a mid-carter, upper mid-carter at the end of his run coming in and winning your world championship, which basically looks like, you know, WWE's, you know, mid-card is better than our main event guys. And it was the same thing with WCW and the fact that, you know, here's two guys from WWE coming with baseball bats and we're taking out your entire roster. It made your roster look really, really weak by proxy. And it was it was good for business, and that was different, but it was bad for WCW, and it made everybody who was affiliated with WCW look bad. Now how how well do you feel like the New World Order was booked in WCW? Well, the, the, to me, it was booked perfectly because that's what every company – you look at every major company. Um, their most successful runs are when they have a bad guy on top or a very strong – heel stable you look at you know nwa with the four horsemen you know you go to wwe uh when you had austin versus you know mcmahon and all his cronies you know it's always been that one conquering hero trying to take down 
the bad guy group. Even, you know, current like last year, we saw Daniel Bryan versus the authority. You know, stuff like that is always good for business. When the NWO came along and you had Hogan as the world champion, you had Hall and Nash as the tag team champions, and then you had the filler guys kind of around them, surrounding them, and then you would take a Sting or Lex Luger or Diamond Dallas Page and or and eventually Goldberg and push those guys against the NWO. It made each of those guys stars in the process. So early on, the booking for the NWO I thought was fantastic. And I... Well, I've been listening to interviews with Brian Alvarez from WrestlingObserver.com and uh, plugging his the re the re release of his book Death of WCW, and he mentioned in different interviews about how like the NWO it felt once you know there's like a like a fine line on you know so many members joined the NWO and like let's say when like Vincent or Scott Norton joined the group that was way too much. When do you feel like it was too much? How many people? In the NWO, do you feel like it was too much when they got to, or I guess I'm just excited to have you on. What was the bowling point on how many members should have been in the NWO in your opinion? I mean, to me, like, it depends on what you were looking for. Now, what originally the booking plan was, <coughs> was that there was going to be an entire NWO company and a WCW company. But the problem happened was when you had a guy, when you started having guys flip back and forth so fast and so rapidly that you were losing track. Now, if you're going off just sheer volume, like once they've split it and you had, you know, NWO Hollywood and NWO Wolfpack and then you had WCW, it became so convoluted that you didn't know who you were rooting for. You know, like when Sting and Lex Luger joined the Wolfpack, you're like, wait, but these guys are trying to kill WCW also, but they're also fighting the NWO. It became such a mess that it, it got out of hand. You know, I didn't mind when Vincent joined and when X-Pac joined and, you know, even the Rick Rude incident was, I thought was great on their part. You know, you know, the Rick people, are, people underestimate that the Rick Rude joining the NWO changed Monday night raw because they couldn't do tape shows anymore. They couldn't do handshake deals anymore. They had to completely change their operating business because of that incident. So, you know, the NWO adding guys in here and there wasn't bad. Scott Norton coming in was good because it showed that they were branching out into J you know Japan and making the Japanese audience feel like they were a part of the show, and they were able to take the NWO to Japan. So those ones weren't bad. It just became a mess when you didn't know where the lines were drawn in the storylines you were watching because you had two NWO groups and a WCW group. You had three entities fighting on the show. You didn't know who to root for anymore. When do you feel like the NWO should have ended, in your opinion? I honestly didn't think it should have ever ended. I think you could have kept, you know, rebranding it, relaunching it, re you know, repackaging it. You know, if, if they had changed it in, like, after Hogan, Hall, Nash, all those guys were getting injured, and you came back with, like, the Bret Hart NWO, the Jeff Jarrett NWO, you know, downsize it into a Four Horsemen-esque stable, a much smaller stable, much more, you know, smaller, cohesive group, they could have ran with that the entire length of WCW, you know, if they had wanted to, because it was still cool. I mean, people still rooted for the NWO, you know, the guys that were in their 20s and 30s, you know, still wanted to root for the bad guys because, you know, it was the cool thing to do. That's why we were rooting for Austin on the other show, because he was still, yeah, he was the good guy, but he was still kind of a badass among the terms of what normal society was. So we may as well kind of uh, switch topics for a little while, huh? One thing that I felt like that with the popularity of professional wrestling, wrestling in the 90s and the rise of the Monday Night Wars was WCW and WWE adding 
a B show with WCW Thunder and WWF SmackDown. Do you really rem- uh, did you watch those shows when they first came to be? Yeah, I watched SmackDown a lot more because Smack. I mean, Thursday nights is, was the best night for wrestling. You know, I, I mean, SmackDown's on Friday nights now, but Thursday night for me was the best because it was the last night really before the weekend kicked off. I mean, most people aren't doing much on Thursday nights. There wasn't much competition from anything else other than, you know, at the time, you know, Friends and, you know, the NBC comedies. So Thursday night to me was the night that I knew no matter what I was going to watch. I mean, Monday nights, you know, hey, I'm a football fan. I'm a 49er fan. If they're playing on Monday nights, I'm skipping Raw and, and Nitro to watch the 49er game. You know, but Thursdays, there was nothing else on. So, you know, when they started SmackDown, you know, and then Thunder, you know, was like the answer to it. You know, I'd watch it. I didn't really care for Thunder. I, I didn't like the setup. I didn't like the arena. It just, to me, it, it looked like, it, it just didn't look as cool as what Nitro did. You know, SmackDown was nice because it was the complete opposite from Raw. You know, Raw was the entertainment show, you know, and it was all red and black. And then there's SmackDown blue and white. And it was more of the wrestling show. So I tended to watch SmackDown more than the other three shows, you know, more intently because I'm a fan of actual wrestling and not just promos and, you know, cool, you know, monster trucks and, and beer trucks showing up. Yeah, because I know I was the same, with, with, same way with you. Uh, I did some research last night, you know, putting together the outline. And I noted that Thunder started in January of 1998 and. So, uh, SmackDown started in you know August September of 1999, and I was surprised that WWE waited almost a year and a half to answer WCW Thunder. Well, well, the thing was with it, you know, with WCW and being owned by Ted Turner, they had more access and more freedom to the different networks available because Ted Turner owned TNT, which is where Nitro was, and they owned TBS where they put Thunder. So, you know, when you have a guy like Eric Bischoff who's trying to kill WWE and he goes, hey, we need a second show, you know, and, this, and you see the ratings that Nitro is getting on TNT. Well, TBS was available in more households than what TNT was. So they had the ability much easier to add the second show where, you know, when you look at WWE, at the time when they added, you know, SmackDown, they were on TNT, you know, so they had to go with whatever CBS, you know, would allow them to have. And that's why they ended up on the CW, you know, or no, actually on UPN at first, you know, they were on a network that had UPN was in less households than TBS was. And UPN was actually a network channel where TBS was cable, but TBS had a greater reach than what UPN had. You know, kind of, you know, with WWE and WCW adding stuff, one thing I felt like, I guess this was towards the peak and the downfall of WCW, but how Nitro added a third hour to it when Raw was still two hours. Do you do you remember much of the three-hour days of Nitro? Oh, yeah, I remember. And, and I remember a lot of people, much like, you know, recently when Raw went to three hours, a lot of people were saying this is going to be bad. How do you fill that extra hour? You know, and, and they could have done the problem with, with what WCW did was that third hour, that extra hour became more promos and more, you know, packaging videos. And it wasn't about the wrestling. When you had a really amazing cruiserweight division, you could make an amazing tag team division and you had all these stars aligned. They, they needed a third hour to get their investment out of the talents they had paid. 
but they kind of faltered with that and it didn't come out, I guess, as good as what they had hoped for. Plus there was so much transition in their writing staff and their, you know, production staff. And then, you know, who was running the show, you know, you never knew from week to week, you know, who was writing the show. So, I mean, that was where their problem was. I mean, if they had come in and done a third hour and added in even more wrestling, you know, I'm sure fans would have loved it. But when it became another extra hour of just fluff and filler, it kind of turned fans away and they would go back to raw where raw the entire show, the entire two hours was, you know, pretty much action packed in ring drama, which is what wrestling fans really want overall. I know you mentioned uh, about, you know, when Nitro was three hours and they didn't know who the writers were. Do you have any opinion about Vince Russo? Since it seems like Vince Russo gets bashed a lot on from different, different people from the business and different podcasts. I know you and Jeff, um, you know, when you guys do your podcast, it's still real to a show. I know you guys, I, I don't really remember you guys talking about Vince Russo, if any at all. So I guess, do you have any opinion or thoughts about Vince Russo? Well, we talked about him a few weeks back when the whole thing came out, you know, when, you know, people were saying that TNA and, uh, you know, Spike Network were clashing over Vince working with the company because it, to me, Vince Russo gets a bad rap. I mean, he's made a lot of, there's been a lot of bad storyline decisions he's made, but he's also made a ton of good ones. You know, so I think he becomes, tends to be the scapegoat for everything that goes wrong within a company. You know, you can't blame one writer for the entire problems within a company because his writing still has to get approved by the producers and the network. You know, WCW had a problem with everything. I mean, you had all these wrestlers who had, you know, in their contracts where they have cre- they had creative control over their character. You know, well if I'm writing a show and I can't tell and and I'm in charge, but I can't make, you know, wrestler a lose because it's best for the storyline because of his contract, it's going to screw up my writing process. So, you know, this Russo gets a bad rap for a lot of his stuff. I mean, there were some things in there that were, that were horrible. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying he's the best writer ever, but I think he tends to, people just go, you know, want to blame Vince Russo because it's the hip and cool thing to do. Okay. So do you feel like, in uh, I know in WWE he had Vince McMahon to you know bounce the stuff off of and and Vince McMahon had the ultimate say so and and I know McMahon would tweak some of the ideas that Russo threw out and I heard when Russo was in WCW he didn't have the person to bounce the ideas off of and to tweak to make it you know best for business do you feel like that might be why Russo was I guess, crapped upon for his booking in WCW because he didn't have a guy like Mr. McMahon to bounce his ideas off of? You know, and that's, that's, a, that's a very good point. I mean, that, and that's probably a lot of what it was because, you know, every great television show is not written by one guy. There's a staff of writers, and they bounce stuff off of each other, and then they come to a cohesive agreement. I mean, even in WWE right now, yes, Vince has final say-so, but there's writing staff. You have a head writer, and then you have a bunch of guys underneath it. Russo and WCW was basically writing the entire show. He had Ed Ferrara, you know, and then he had Eric Bischoff for a while to bounce ideas off of. But people forget Bischoff got removed or you know left for a while, and then came back towards the end when they were trying to relaunch it. You know, so it basically came down to Vince writing the entire show. And you know, anybody who's creative in any kind of way knows that not every idea you have is gold. I mean. I tend to think of myself as a comedian. I like to make a lot of funny jokes. 
But I'll tell my friends right real right away. Not every joke I make is going to be A plus material. Sometimes you're getting D and C list material because that's what I can come up with at the spur of the moment. When you have guys that you're investing in and you're trying to write an entire show for 40 or 50 guys who all want to be a part of the show, not everything is going to be great. I mean, stuff with like Kiwi, you know, or the artist formerly known as Prince Iakea. I mean, some of those ideas were really bad, but you're trying to make everybody on your roster feel a part of the show. And, you know, people like one of the biggest things in wrestling that I don't know if fans really get or not is you either have to be loved or hated to get over in wrestling. You cannot be middle of the road and not get a response. If you walk out from behind that curtain and the crowd doesn't clap or doesn't boo and they just watch you walk to the ring, you're dead right there. So him trying to give guys gimmicks or something to get noticed and get a response from the fans was admirable, but some of the ideas were less than perfect, I guess. Well, we may as well get back into my outline. And there's one thing I wanted to get your thoughts on. So I felt like this infamous incident helped turn the WWF around, and that was the Montreal screw job, where Vince and Vince McMahon and Shawn Michaels screwed Bret Hart. I don't feel like I don't believe that we would ultimately know the truth from all parties. But with what you know, Captain, what is your overall thoughts on the Montreal screw job? Overall, I think it was a bad situation handled badly by everybody involved because, you know, the precipice was. You know, the reason Vince wanted the belt off of Brett was from what Medusa Michelli did with the women's title and her dropping it in the trash on Monday Nitro. Still one of the most thought about biggest incidents from the entire Monday Night War was her doing that. And to me, it's funny because once she did that, she really didn't have a career in WCW after that. That was they basically hired her to come in and do that one thing. And she didn't do much after it. But, you know, Vince did not want the world title dropped in a trash can. And it's completely understandable. If, if I'm in a company and you're holding something that's very precious to my company and you're leaving, I don't want you to take it with you. But at the same time, you know, Brett didn't want to drop the belt. Vince didn't want to have it. So it was a bad situation, and the best thing they could do was the screw drop. Now, should it have been handled that way? No. It should have been handled sometime even before they got to the point of Montreal. It should have been handled somewhere in the States. That way... You wouldn't alienate an entire country. I mean, here we are, God knows how many years later, and Canadians still cannot get over that incident. You know, you know, Shawn Michaels shows up in Montreal, they still boo the hell out of him because of that incident. To me, it was just, it was just, you know, it was, you know, two trains on the wrong track destined for a collision, and what we got was the fallout from the wreckage. Do you remember how? You reacted, or do you remember your initial thoughts when you either watched Survivor Series 1997 happen, or do you remember how you reacted when you first heard about what happened to Bret Hart that night? See, I, I, at that time, I was still, you know, broke college student, didn't have the money to watch pay per views. I didn't have the luxury of the WWE Network for nine ninety nine. That's my that, my little plug. I think people think I'm contracted to do it, but I'm not. I think it's funny, um, but. I watched Raw the next night, and, you know, Brett wasn't there. Vince, you know, I, I can't remember if he showed up or not. I think it was Jim Ross and Jerry Lawler calling the show because Vince had that huge black eye. And I remember seeing Sean with the belt, and, you know, it was weird to me. You know, I didn't really understand, 
you know, what happened. I, all I heard was, you know, he made Brett tap out to the sharpshooter. And I'm like, that just sounds weird. Like, I don't see how that happened. And then later on that month when the magazine started coming out and you're able to read about what happened and everything else, you're just like, wow. Like, that was one of those incidents where it really kind of blew any perception you might have had that wrestling actually was real. To me, that was that in, that was that was me finding out Santa Claus wasn't real. That was me finding out the Easter Bunny wasn't real. When it comes to wrestling, that a promoter could do that and take it off of a guy without him actually losing it in the ring, you know, it, it was it was a dark day in wrestling because it shattered a lot of the kayfabe, if you want to use that word, that people still had about professional wrestling. And I I guess I have a different spin That's about not- the Montreal screw job. I guess. To what happened at WrestleMania 14, you know, about five, six months after the fact, do you feel like the heat that Shawn Michaels and Vince McMahon got on their characters at Survivor Series 1997, do you feel like that heat helped build Stone Cold Steve Austin at WrestleMania 14 and and further in, into 1998 with his feud with with Vince McMahon? I think I don't think fans got behind Austin more because of the screw job, but I think it cemented. You know, Shawn Michaels and then later Vince McMahon, I, I think it cemented their characters perfectly to play the foils to Austin because, you know, Austin's coming off of WrestleMania 13, you know, with the submission match against Bret Hart, which really is what turned the fans to his side, you know, and him not, you know, submitting to the sharpshooter, you know, that iconic image of him laying there in the sharpshooter with blood pouring out of his head and then him passing out, you know, that is what turned fans to really start rooting for him. And it, he made the perfect character because we've all, you know, anybody who's a grown up has had a job where a boss has screwed them over in some way. And we've always wanted to flip them off and tell them off and, and do all the things that Austin ended up doing. And the screw job cemented Vince as that character, as the evil Mr. McMahon, as that evil guy that, you know, everybody wanted to see him taken down because he was so powerful and so rich and didn't care about anybody else but himself or his company, I think that is what really, you know, cemented Austin's spot and, and really helped propel him up the ladder for WrestleMania 14. Well, since you talked about, you know, the, the Austin versus McMahon feud, do you feel like if it wasn't for the Montreal Screwjob and the Austin versus McMahon feud, wouldn't WWE defeat WCW in the ratings in 1998 and onward? You know, I th- to me, people... You know, to me, the best part about what changed the ratings for Monday Night Raw was for the first couple of years, all you saw was guys leaving WWE and going to WCW. That's all we saw. I mean, you watched Nitro for the NWO and to see who was going to be the next guy to defect over. You know, that's what it was. It's kind of like in sports when you want to see, you know, when the, when the offseason happens and you want to see which free agents are changing teams. It, that's what it was for wrestling at time. What made WWE special was you never knew from week to week which guy was going to main event. I mean, they had such a strong core at that point with Austin, Rock, McFoley, Undertaker, you know, Triple H. You know, you never knew which guy was going to be up at the top of the roster. And then you had Kurt Angle come in and then Chris Jericho come in. You know, you started seeing, you know, you know the, the radicals. You know, Ben Wad, Eddie Guerrero, and Perry Saturn, and Dean Malenko, those guys come over. You started seeing that influx of new talent mixed in with the established guys, and that made it much more exciting. The stuff with Austin McMahon was priceless. It's never going to be duplicated because 
it was a perfect time and it was the right guy in the right place with the right American attitude, you know, because at that point the economy was sluggish. Everybody was angry about not having the jobs and the money they once had. It was the perfect storm for that Austin McMahon, uh, that Austin McMahon rivalry to take place. But it took that rivalry plus the strong, you know, roster that they had built around Austin at the time to really make WWE much more watchable because at that point, WCW, it was the same old thing. It was the same thing of, you know, Hogan, Nash, and Hall still dominating television, you know, nobody really being built up to take them down, you know, until Goldberg came along after, you know, Austin came along. I guess yeah, going back to 1997 and end of the year, how should WCW capitalize on bringing in Bret Hart after the Montreal Screwjob? He should come in day one. I mean, his contract was up. He had signed the new contract. He was the hottest name in wrestling. I mean, everybody was on Bret Hart's side. And to have Hart come in, you know, th- I think it was like three or four months after the screw job, by that point, people had kind of, the, the egos had kind of died down. And, and, you know, people weren't as hurt by the screw job as they were right away. If he had come in day one and cut a promo on Vince McMahon and then cut a promo on Eric Bischoff and Hogan, you know, and, and if he had been the savior of WCW, it would have changed everything. It would have been a completely different world because everybody wanted to see Hulk Hogan versus Bret Hart. You know, that was the dream match. It wasn't Hart versus Sting or Hart versus Flair. It was Hart versus Hogan because people also knew the beef that Hart and Hogan had in WWE. It was the perfect timing for it. And for some reason, WCW blew it. And to this day, I still don't think we've got an answer as to why Bret Hart was not on TV for the first three months after he came over from WWE. Because if I remember correctly, the night after the screw job, the NWO opened up WCW Nitro and they were all were holding Canadian flags, like the small miniature ones. And they were saying that Bret Hart would be coming soon to WCW and they will be, and he will be joining the NWO and how Bret Hart made his first TV appearance at Star K97 in the main event of, for the main event of Hogan and Stan for the WCW title. Yeah, but see, that was, you know, it, it should have been, he should have been there right away. I mean, it's just one of the things, like, if you have, like, okay, let me try to think. It's like if, if you're the Minnesota Twins and somehow you get Mike Trout on your team, you sign Mike Trout, you know, the best player in baseball, the most name, you know, mo- maybe the most known player in baseball, but you sit him out of your lineup for the first month. You know, your fans are going to be like, what the hell? We know you have, you know, that was the thing. WCW fans knew (coughs) that they had signed Bret Hart. Bret Hart showed you at Survivor Series. He did the whole air WCW thing. Everybody knew Bret was going to WCW. If he had been there on that first Nitro or even the week after Nitro, it would have blown WWE out of the water ratings wise. I mean, they would have got such a boost from that right away. But to have him show up unannounced at Starcade, a pay-per-view that, you know, fans, you know, if, if they had announced it, hey, Bret Hart's going to be here for Starcade, it might have got some more views. But Nitro was free. And that's what fans, that's why fans watch Raw and Nitro and SmackDown and Thunder, because it was free. We didn't have to pay for it, you know, and that's why the ratings were so good that time. If Hart had showed up right away and and actually kind of kept you know, his, his golden boy character and not join the NWO, 
WCW would have been completely different for you know the next year. And it was a shame the way it happened because a lot of fans got down on it and then seeing him join the NWO and end up you know challenging for the US title instead of the world title, fans took a crap on that. I guess another thing that I feel like WCW dropped the ball on was would have been a year after Bret Hart made his first TV appearance at Star King 1998, where the Goldberg streak came to an end to Kevin Nash. What is, I guess, what is your overall thoughts on Nash being the guy to end Goldberg's streak and having the interference from Scott Hall with a, with a taser or whatever he used to defeat Goldberg? See, I, I didn't have a problem with that because Goldberg's streak had to end at some point. And it became, much like the Undertaker streak at WrestleMania, it became an albatross in a lot of ways because, you know, if you look at Undertaker's WrestleMania streak, I mean, you know, he had these great matches with Shawn Michaels and with Triple H and with CM Punk, but fans didn't believe that any of these guys were really going to be a threat to challenge the streak. It was almost a foregone conclusion that Undertaker was going to win. And it was the same thing during Goldberg's streak because after he beat Hogan and won the world title for the first time, you know, it was like, okay, well, if he beat Hogan, you know, there's nobody else that can touch this guy. You know, so no matter who he was facing, it was almost like, yeah, we want you wanted to watch, but there was no mystery. You all we all kind of knew Goldberg was going to win. You know, Nash beating Goldberg by Scott Hall's interference kind of, you know, created that little bit of a of, of a of a nick in his armor where, yes, Goldberg can be defeated. So anytime he's wrestling, you have to watch and see if maybe he goes down again. You know, they didn't do that in WWE. Austin's the biggest character of all time, but Austin still lost matches. You know, you go back to that first blood match with Austin and Kane. Who would have thought Kane was going to beat Austin in a first blood match? Nobody. Nobody thought Austin was going to lose, but he did lose, and it created more intrigue for you to watch. So Goldberg Street coming down, losing to Kevin Nash. You know, was Nash the right guy? That's debatable, but the streak had to come to an end at some point because it was just becoming too big. If it wasn't Kevin Nash, who do you feel like would, would have been the best person to defeat Goldberg? Um, at that time, it's hard to say. Like Because everybody that he was facing were older stars. To me, it's kind of like the same thing with, you know, everybody's upset that Brock Lesnar beat Undertaker, you know, because Brock's a part-time guy. But whoever beats Brock Lesnar is a certified star. So if you want to make a young guy your star, that's the best way to do it. Because whoever you put against Brock Lesnar instantaneous star the same thing with Goldberg you know you couldn't I mean anybody you put in the ring with Goldberg is going to get that weird kind of rub off of it you know Nash beat Goldberg but then they ruined it by having Nash drop the title to Hogan right away in the finger poke of doom you know that really ruined the whole thing if Nash had come out and had a decent run with a belt and then somebody beat Nash it would have made that guy a star to me the problem was they didn't have anybody on the roster that they were trying to build up other than diamond dallas page so to me the only other logical choice to be goldberg would have been page because he was the next big star they were building up at the time so i guess kind of comparing it to wrestling nowadays with brock lesnar being the one to to end the undertaker's undefeated streak at wrestlemania and nash being the one to take the world title off of goldberg and end in his streak do you feel like they should have built kevin nash like they kind of are with brock lesnar nowadays and have him hold the title for 
six months to a year, if not longer, and to build somebody up to beat the man who beat Goldberg? Yeah, I mean, if, if you watch WWE television today, which I know most of the guys listening to your show do, they always talk about, you know, like, you know, the whole thing with Brock Lesnar and John Cena, you know, the one to beat the one who beat the streak. You know, that's a big thing now. You know, who's going to be the guy to take down Brock Lesnar because he beat The Undertaker? If they had done that with Kevin Nash, where they're like, okay, Nash beat Goldberg. I mean, that makes Nash a big name, even bigger than he, what he was, because he beat Goldberg. Yeah, it was Scott Hall's help, but he beat Goldberg. So if you have, you know, put Kevin Nash in that top spot of, okay, this guy's your world champion, who's going to take him down because he beat Goldberg? You know, you could have built somebody up for that chase and made them a much bigger star for your fans to build around. And you still had Goldberg as your backup plan. You know, that's the thing. Fans love the chase. And, I, and I've said this on our show many, many times. People love Daniel Bryan's chase. People loved go back to the 80s. People loved when Macho Man was chasing the world title. You know, people loved when Dusty Rhodes was chasing Ric Flair. People love when Austin was chasing Shawn Michaels, and then every time Vince would somehow get the belt off of him, Austin was chasing again. We love the chase. We love the underdog. That's who we kind of root for. The whole WCW thing with Nash beating Goldberg killed it because Nash turned around and gave the belt to Hogan, and they were like, well, we just saw Goldberg beat Hogan, so he's, he's beatable. And you're just kind of left in a state of flux going, okay, well, who's the next guy then? True, and I guess I, you know, I might as well move to the next topic. I felt like Degeneration X was often considered to be the WWF's answer to the New World Order and WCW. Do you feel like the DX was the WWF's answer to the NWO? You know, I watched that whole thing on the Monday Night Wars, and people, you know, they, they try to sit there and say that, oh, no, we were doing something completely different. And yes, they were. But yeah, DX was the answer to the NWO in a lot of ways, not in the sense of this heel faction taking over the company, but they were the cool guys to root for. They were the cool guys who were going to do outlandish stuff, crazy stuff, and get fans to really go, I want to see what they're doing next. You know, to me, it was funny because I was sitting there watching those Monday Night Wars and Eric Bischoff was on there, compl- you know, almost kind of complaining about what WWE was doing. And, you know, I'm a radio guy. My favorite radio guy of all time is Howard Stern, you know, And if you watch Private Parts, one of the things in that movie that's really, really clearly put out there was, you know, people who listen to Howard Stern listen for an hour, hour and a half. Number one reason, to see what he was going to say next. People who hated Howard Stern listen for two to two and a half hours. Number one reason, to see what they were going to, what he was going to say next. DX became that answer in a lot of ways to Howard Stern, where he was, they were shock jocks on TV. You never knew what they were going to do next, what outlandish thing they were going to do next. And it didn't matter if it was the Shawn Michaels Triple H incarnation or the later Triple H Outlaws and X-Pac incarnation. You never knew what they were going to do next, and that's what made them great to watch. The NWO was different in that they were a bunch of bad guys doing gang mentality style fighting, You know, where DX was just like, we're just going to break all the rules and do all the stuff that we're not supposed to do. And that was what was cool at the time because in a society that is – built on following rules dx and you know by also steve austin were breaking them all and that's what made them entertaining to watch well what's your thoughts on dx over the years and the feuds that they've had i mean the best dx feud was dx versus the nation of domination i mean that was perfect timing you had four on four 
you know, in four and five, if you count, you know, Owen Hart being part of the nation, but it was perfect. I mean, it was like the best, you know, of both worlds because the nation was so, you know, staunch and, and, you know, they were fighting for a cause and a reason and they had like no sense of humor in a lot of ways. And then you had DX and they were like the fun loving guys, you know, that, that was a great feud. You know, the stuff with Shawn Michaels and triple H against, you know, Sergeant Slaughter was hilarious. You know, DX was really, really good in the fact that they could flip from one side to the other. They could be you know, the, the most popular guys on the roster or they could be the most hated guys on the roster. And it didn't take much to flip them and get a response from the fans. And that's, you know, those are the guys you want to watch on TV, whether it was DX or Shawn Michaels or, or Chris Jericho, you know, those guys who can flip back and forth so easily from, uh, from baby face to, to heel. Those are the best guys to watch because you never know what they're going to do next. I know you kind of mentioned a little bit before, but what do you th- what is the best incarnation of DX? The original bunch with Michael, Triple H, China, and Rick Rude, or Triple H, China, X Pac, and the Outlaws? See, I'm torn on that one because you know I'm I'm a Shawn Michaels mark. I love Shawn Michaels from you know going back to the AWA days when he was part of the Midnight Rockers, and then coming in with Marty Jannetty as the, the Rockers, and then the Sexy Boy. To me, I'm a Shawn Michaels fan, so. You know, the original Shawn Michaels, Triple H, China, you know, Rick Rude for his time being there. That was the best one for me because they did so much crazy outlandish stuff that, you know, you could never get away with now in the PG era. I mean, it's not even close. I mean, from the language to the sexual innuendos to just their blatant disregard for everything around them. That, to me, was the best incarnation. You know, the the DX version with Triple H, the Outlaws, and X-Pac was still fun, but it became more about the wrestling and, and everything else. So to me, being the shock jock fan, the radio guy, I, I go with the original incarnation. Okay, then can I talk about you know, Triple H a little bit? I feel like with the rise of the Monday Night War and WWF taking over WCW, after WCW kicked their backsides for a while, I feel like Triple H also rose over the years during the Monday Night War and became the main event, main event status star towards the end of the Monday Night War. I guess, what's your thoughts on the ascension of Triple H during the Monday Night War? You know, I think Triple H, for as much flack as he gets, is highly, highly underrated for the career path that he had. I mean, you know, at the start of the Monday Night Wars, he's feuding with, you know, Henry Godwin, you know, and having, you know, pig slot matches, you know. And then not just, you know, he the guy changed his character, changed his physique, went from being a backup in DX. He was, you know, he was the sidekick. He was the secondary guy to becoming, you know, the main guy of of DX to then, you know, going on to the corporation and everything else. I mean, there are very, very few guys in wrestling that can say they did that. and went from being, you know, usually if you're in a group and you look at all the great groups of, you know, the four horsemen, you know, evolution, you know, legacy, you know, all these great groups that we've had over the last 15, 20 years, nobody's really gone from being the sidekick to a main eventer. Yet you can say it with evolution with Randy Orton and Batista, but you know, it didn't happen with the four horsemen, it didn't happen with the NWO, and it didn't happen in legacy. You know, Triple H made a huge change that nobody else really has done. And yeah, maybe it's partly because he did marry the boss's daughter at one at some point. But the guy changed his look, his physique, his character, and did everything. And seamlessly, 
it was a transition. It wasn't like, you know, one day he was this and the next day he's completely different. It was a seamless transition over the course of 10 years. And it made him into a Hall of Famer and one of the greatest wrestlers of our generation. I felt like during the time of the Monday Night Wars and, you know, that 10-year period you were talking about Triple H, I feel like one guy who helped bring him up from, I guess, the Henry Godwin days to being a main event instead of star, being the WWF, WWF champion was the feud he had with Mick Foley. You know, the awesome steel cage match that they had at Survivor Series, I think, 97, 96, 97, and up to, up through the feud that he had with Mick Foley, Cactus Jack, in, at the Royal Rumble 2000, their street fight in the Hell in a Cell match at No Way Out in 2000. I guess I w- would like your thoughts on Foley help bring bringing Triple H up to being a main event status superstar. You know, everybody has to have that arch rival. Every every great, you know, person in in the rest in the in the history of wrestling has had that arch rival. Whether it was Hogan and Macho Man, Flair and Dusty Rhodes. You know, to me, I always say Sting and Lex Luger because they were best friends, and then they turn on each other and go back and forth. You know, Austin versus The Rock. You know, Shawn Michaels had Bret Hart. Triple H had Mick Foley. And Mick Foley, in a lot of ways, helped elevate Triple H's game. Because every time Triple H would extend a level, Mick Foley was there to counter it. You know, and it's they just had each other, and they're such polar opposites in their approach in the ring. I mean, Mick Foley's the working class, you know, hero in a lot of ways. Triple H, you know, although he was in DX, people still remember that he came up originally as the Blue Blood. And then... He got involved with the McMahons, and, and so he was the polar opposite to what McFoley was. So you have to have that great rivalry to really build off of and become, you know, who you are destined to be in a lot of ways. And you're absolutely right. McFoley was that, you know, that answer to the Triple H, and really helped. They helped each other build themselves up that roster to where it became must see TV whenever those two guys were going to be in the ring together. And kind of tied in with. His feud with Foley, I feel like Foley also kind of helped bring Triple H up to the level where Stone Cold Steve Austin was. And I feel like another awesome feud that Triple H had was with Stone Cold Steve Austin. You know, with it ending the, was it the No Way Out before WrestleMania 17, where they had that three stages of hell match, where Triple H at the end, you know, came out the victor, especially, you know, to everybody's surprise when. The month before, Austin won his third third Royal Rumble and was to go on to WrestleMania and and defeat The Rock at WrestleMania 17. What's your thoughts on Triple H and Steve Austin Austin in the feud that they had? Well, it was a good feud. I mean, to me, it's it's not it's neither man's best feud. I mean, to me, the, the highlight of that whole feud was you know Austin destroying the DX Express. You know, that was the highlight of the feud to me, but. You know, it was another great feud, and and it kind of helped cement Triple H's spot as being a main event guy. You know, because that's one of the hardest transitions to make. And I think people don't really, you know, people talk about it now. If you look at the current, you know, everybody's like, well, why isn't Dolph Ziggler main eventing, or why isn't Cesaro main eventing? Because in reality, they don't have that cement approval that they are main event guys. And that was the same thing with Triple H at the time, because Triple H had had made that ascension from being the sidekick to then becoming the European champion, intercontinental champion, and working his way up, you know, those feuds with Austin kind of helped cement Triple H as being, yes, he is one of our main event guys. We are putting the ball in his hands, and we feel like he can run with it. And it was kind of like that seal of approval that takes a lot of guys in WWE a long time to get. 
So, you know, kind of tie in with, you know, Foley and Austin, I feel like another guy that walked up the ladder of, you know, bottom, you know, the jobber level to, you know, to the middle, mid-card status, the Intercontinental title division up to the WWF title division was The Rock. Because I felt like, you know, Triple H and The Rock kind of walked up with one another up, you know, up the divisions to to mid-event status uh, and all that. So I guess I'd like to also get your thoughts on Triple H's feud with The Rock. I think one of the great things about Triple H is that Triple H, you know, there's 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 an old adage in wrestling, you know, can you draw money? Can you make people want to watch you? Can you make people want to tune in? I don't think anybody's ever really said, I want to watch Triple H wrestle. But everybody wants to see Triple H fight somebody else. You know, it's it's not so much about him per se. It's just that when you watch Triple H, you know you're going to get a good match. It doesn't matter who you're in the ring with. It's going to be a competitive, hard-fought, tough match. And you're absolutely right. Rock and Triple H are mirror images of each other. Both guys start off as, you know, bad opening gimmicks. Then they both fall into stables as the sidekick. Then take over those stables. And then work their way up to main event status. So... Those guys literally were mirror images of each other because they made the same ascension at the same time, you know, and by proxy were working against each other. I mean, one of their best matches was over that ladder match over the Intercontinental title. One of the best, most underrated ladder matches of all time was those two guys fighting it out. And you're absolutely right. They actually made the ascension at the same time. And that's what made WWE so great was you could interchange the rivalries, whether it was Austin Rock, Austin Triple H, Triple H versus Mick Foley, Mick Foley versus Rock, those guys were all interchangeable, and you could have great rivalries, and it was must-see TV because all four or five of those guys were on the same level in the fans' eyes. They were all main event guys, and they were interchangeable. You can't you look at WWE TV right now. There's John Cena. There's Brock Lesnar. Is anybody else really a main event wrestler that you figure could be a world champion right now? I can't think of anybody, to be honest. And that's one of the reasons why you know wrestling's struggling right now because you haven't built up any guys to that level right now. And and WWE, you go back to WCW. You had Hogan, you had Sting, Goldberg, Nash, Diamond Dallas Page, Ric Flair. You know all those guys at the end of WCW, Bret Hart, were all main event wrestlers that you could have made great rivalries out of, but they lost sight of that and got so fixated on making money in the NWO way and stuff like that, that they lost track of how do you make this television interesting? You know, every in WCW's biggest problem was every single main event match ended up in kind of some kind of screw job finish. And so fans never felt there was a clear winner. You know, when you had Austin versus rock or Austin versus triple H or, you know, whoever it was for the vast majority of those matches, some guy was a clear cut winner. There wasn't some screw job finish. Some guy beat the other guy. And then the other guys coming back looking for revenge, and that's what made WWTV better than WCW's. So I guess one more feud I'd like to kind of talk about, well, Triple H, you kind of mentioned earlier when we were talking about DX was, I guess, his feud with Sergeant Slaughter. So I felt that, that, was, I that feud was most forgettable, I guess. And the only reason why I bring it up is that I was a guest on a different podcast, I think about a week ago or so, and we reviewed the pay-per-view in your house, Degeneration X, where Slaughter and Triple H had a boot camp match, which was 
okay up to the last few minutes, which made bump the match up. But yeah, I kind of want to get your uh, quick thoughts on Sergeant Slaughter versus Triple H. Well, you know, you, you, you go back to that whole little rivalry with, with Slaughter being the commissioner and, and, and Shawn Michaels and Triple H, you know, being the degenerates that, you know, was, you know, anti-authority. And the, the rivalry itself was fun because, you know, most, you know, a lot of, a lot of guys who watch wrestling have had some kind of authoritative parent or authoritative presence in their life that they wanted to say those things to. And that's what you had. Shawn Michaels and, and Triple H at that moment were acting like, you know, a couple of high school kids, you know, trying to take, you know, trying to mess with the principal. And that's what it was. And that's what made it so much fun to watch the match itself. The boot camp match. Yeah, very, it was it's forgettable because, you know, I, I know people love to see the old guys get in the ring with the young guys. But the matches themselves are kind of hard to watch because it's not going to be, you know, a 15, 20 minute, you know, great match. It's not it's, it's just something fun to kind of blow off the rivalry with. And that's what that was. I mean, that boot camp match, it was, you know, it was okay. And the ending was kind of, eh. but the rivalry itself was fun to watch because, you know, every person who's 15, 16 years old, you know, has that itch to tell off their principal, their teacher, their, their coach on football, their parents. And, and that's what made it fun to watch. I guess, you know, kind of transition, you know, with one of the guys that we talked about with his feud with Triple H was, I want to type was, Mick Foley, as in his match that he had with The Undertaker at Hell in a Cell, or inside the Hell in a Cell at King of the Ring in 1998, since I thought that was probably the most, I guess depending on, depending on how you want to look at it, the most famous or the most infamous Hell in a Cell match, period, in WWE history. I guess I want to get your thoughts on that match overall and the two huge spots that Mankind took off the cell. Um... As a guy who's, you know, kind of working in the independent wrestling business right now, I would tell people if you watch that match, don't ever do that. <laughs> that was it, it was insane. And I remember, you know, I, I've read stuff and, and watched interviews of people talking about that. You know, and, and my when I first saw it, I was like, You gotta be kidding me, because that's something we did in video games. You know, everybody who's played a WWE video game has climbed to the top of the cell with their created wrestler and tried to throw somebody off the top of the cell. But to see it actually happen in real life, you're just blown away by it. Like, there's no way a human being can survive the first fall, you know. And then to see Mick Foley get back up and get back in the ring and claw, or get back up to the top of the cage and then take another fall through the top of the cage to the mat, you're like, that's insane. You know, and, and that's one of those things. That's one of those things when people tell me that wrestling's fake. I tell them to watch that match and tell me how that guy's not hurt. Because you can't take a fall like that. You, no human being should be able to survive that, let alone continue a match. And, and Mick Foley, that made him a star, even more than he already was. He had that huge cult following from being Cactus Jack and ECW and WCW and then into WWE. Because to me, I, I still go back to, you know, in your house, mind games, you know, Mick Foley versus Shawn Michaels. One of the best matches I've ever seen Shawn Michaels have. You know, because it was a different style. But that match with Undertaker made Mick Foley a star and, and kind of changed wrestling in a lot of ways because that's what really started ushering in the more hardcore era of, w, of WWF. And WCW didn't have anybody on their roster that could do the stuff that Mick Foley did. I know you kind of mentioned a few of these guys earlier, but I want to get your thoughts on 
in, towards the end of 1999 and 2000, guys like Chris Jericho and Eddie Guerrero and Perry Saturn and Chris Benoit and Dean Malenko, guys who were misusing WCW jumped over to the WWF, and most of those guys became world champions sometime before their careers came to an end. I guess I want to get your thoughts on the misuse of the lower card talent that WCW had and those guys, like like those guys I mentioned, jumping over becoming main event, main event stars. See, it, it actually goes exactly to the point we were talking about earlier about, you know, TNA even, and then WCW also back in those days. Because WCW would hire guys from WWE, they would come in and get an immediate push up the roster. You know, Hall and Ash come in, they can hold off the entire roster of WW of WCW with baseball bats. The Radicals come in, you know, Guerrero, Benoit. Benoit was a world champion the day before he showed up in WWE. I mean, he beat Sid Vicious, won the world title, and then left the company the next day. I mean, and he comes in, and I remember right away, it was, you know, they had the Radicals versus DX. DX beat every single member of the Radicals. So it showed right there that, yes, these are WCW guys, but they're still not on our level yet. They have to step their game up, and it made WWE look strong. You know, Jericho came in and, you know, had a huge fan following. The Internet fans at that point had come along and loved Jericho. He comes in the first night he's out there verbally sparring with The Rock. But he didn't get that main event push right away. He got pushed into stuff with, you know, the Intercontinental title and, and the European title and stuff like that. He didn't get, you know, he his first match wasn't with The Rock or with Austin. I think it was with Road Dog on SmackDown. Yeah, the first I mean, episode of SmackDown. Yeah, and it was a, like a tables match, you know, or he ended up putting Road Dog through a table. But that's what it was. It wasn't. You know, we didn't get they didn't get that huge push right away. They had to earn their spot in WWE, which made WWE by proxy look stronger, you know, but it also showed WWE's you know, mechanism for hiring talent. We're not going to go hire Sting or Lex Luger or, you know, the older guys of WW or WCW. We're going to hire your younger guys who still have tread on the tires and then make them stars, you know, our way. And so it, it really worked out well for w, you know, WWE because those guys became, like you said, main event guys over the course of their careers and got a lot more use out of those guys than WCW did with any of their guys they hired from WWE because, yeah, they got Hall, Nash, you know, Bret Hart, but they really only got four or five years out of them where, you know, Chris Jericho, it's 2014, Jericho's still in WWE. I kind of talked about Jericho and kind of want to mention, I guess, his feud with Triple H in early to mid-2000 where it was, I think, a Raw in Penn State where Jericho had a cup of coffee with the WWF title where he won the title by a quick come by Earl Hebner, then Earl overturned it later on the night, then Jericho's last time standing match with Triple H at Fully Loaded over the summer. I guess I want to get your thoughts on those two matches that Jericho and Triple H did and Triple H helped bring bringing Jericho up as a future main event status star in the year 2000. Well, it was, it was a great kind of like we talk about the stamp of approval and that was WWE's way of giving Jericho that stamp of approval that yes, you're a main event guy. We're going to put you in here with Triple H. You're going to get your little, you know, a little taste of the WWE title, which we've seen many times since then, you know, Daniel Bryan, 
CM Punk's first title reign. You know, these guys get these quick little title runs. And it's kind of their way of saying, yes, you're a main event guy. We have faith in you. You know, and it wasn't just that Triple H, you know, Jericho feud. I mean, we went to that two-man power trip with Austin and Triple H versus Benoit and Jericho, which to me made, you know, Benoit and Jericho both main event guys. So that rivalry was kind of a transitioning from, you know, Triple H and, and Stone Cold got us through the last six years. We've got to create some new guys to kind of take their spots if something happens. And in that rivalry with, you know, Triple H and, and Austin and Jericho and, and Benoit, you know, Triple H ended up getting hurt. So that allowed Benoit and Jericho to kind of take his spot on the main event card. And by then they had already had the approval of WWE and the fans because they had had that rivalry earlier. So I guess I kind of want to do some uh, word associations or phrase associations with a few guys that we really didn't get a ch- much of a chance to talk about or didn't even talk about at all. So I got a list, a list, a short list of names that I kind of want to you know throw out there and get your thoughts about them during the Monday Night War era. The first guy that I'm surprised we really didn't talk about is the Undertaker. What's your thoughts about the Undertaker during the Monday Night War era? You know, Undertaker was the gold standard in a lot of ways. He was that stalwart, you know, because he was he'd been there during the Hogan days, been there through the Bret Hart, Shawn Michaels days, you know, and then through the Attitude Era. So he was kind of, you know, he had some good rivalries, but I mean, they're really the the one you people always go to is the Ministry of Darkness stuff. But he was kind of like that bankable character that, you know, we're trying to build these young guys, so. If we need somebody to really give him that approval, they would go to The Undertaker and put him in a few with The Undertaker. So he was maybe not featured as much through the Monday Night Wars as a lot of people think he was, but he was the guy that would almost you know, cement that guy's spot. So he was making stars for the Monday Night Wars. Up next has to be Kane. And I, I guess I'd like to get your thoughts on yeah, Kane's role too during the Monday Night War. You know, the, the amazing thing is if you go like if you look at the history of Kane, I mean, the guy comes in like I remember him from from uh, mids or. Um, oh, God, what's in that company? Jer- Jerry or uh, USWA, you oh, know, yeah, the Jer- yeah, with uh, Jerry Lawler. Yeah, with Jerry Lawler and, and, and Jerry Jarrett running it as the Unabomber. And he was supposed to be the next Sid Vicious because they came up through the same area. And, you know, coming in as Isaac Yankum and then being the fake diesel. And then finally getting a break with Kane, which uh, if you look at Kane, and you, if you're somebody's going to go, we're going to make a guy a gimmick where he's the Undertaker's little brother. How how long do you think that gimmick would really last in real life? I mean, it was just yeah, a, a character. Oh, yeah, I, oh, go ahead. Sorry for interrupting you, but I think the idea was only to have Kane stay around through I think WrestleMania 14, if not not much longer than that. Yeah, that I mean, was in 1998. Yeah, it's a, it's a short term character. That, you know, Glenn Jacobs finally got a guy he could actually, a character he could run with. Because the previous two guys, Isaac Yankum DDS, horrible character, horrible gimmick, wasn't going to last long. Fake Diesel, wasn't going to last long. Kane, not supposed to last long, but he made it his. And, you know, I, I hear people, I, I read something the other day where somebody was calling him too stiff and robotic in the ring, but, you know, in comparison to The Undertaker. Undertaker's a freak of nature. You know, the guy's seven foot and can do crazy shit. Kane, though, Glenn Jacobs can do some stuff in the ring that you know no other guy his size could do and really took a character that should have been a six-month to a year-long character and has now made that character in a Hall of Fame career 
through so many different incarnations. He may not have had a great impact through the Monday Night Wars because, for the most part, he was feuding with his brother and then Mick Foley and, and Stone Cold. But his feuds weren't memorable, but he became one of those characters that you could put in the ring with somebody else and make them look good because he's there beating a monster. Yes, the next guy I'd like to talk about is Mick Foley. Um, Mick Foley, God, I mean, there's so there's, you can't really have the Monday Night Wars on Mick Foley because you know him winning the world title and, and, and Tony Schiavone going on air and telling people he was going to win the world title shifted viewers over to see that win and also changed Monday Night Raw into not being a taped show and, and start doing it more live. You know, because they didn't want their results thrown out there. Even though it worked in their favor in that incident, they didn't want the spoilers out there. And and Mick Foley is such a beloved character because you you look at the guy, he looks like your uncle. You know, he's he's not muscular, he's disheveled to say the least. He just looks like every guy. And that was the same thing with Austin. Austin looked like every guy. Mick Foley looked like literally every single guy you see walking through a Walmart in sweatpants and a torn up shirt. And yet here he is doing crazy falls and crazy bumps and, you know, having these hellacious matches with, you know, Stone Cold or with or with The Rock or with Triple H. He was one of those guys that may not get the love he really deserves for being the icon that he is, but he made wrestling fun to watch in a time when it was all so serious. Mick Foley was, you know, was that comic relief that everybody needed. Up next is The Rock. Um, you know, everybody talks about Austin changing the Monday Night Wars, but The Rock is so was so gifted and, and so natural on the microphone. And, you know, he's the one who really made catchphrases and audience interaction a part of wrestling. You know, nobody else. I mean, Scott Hall, you can say Scott Hall to with a survey a little bit, but nobody did it like The Rock. And in so many ways, Rock changed the course of the Monday Night Wars because people thought he was the coolest guy on TV. He, he wasn't Austin. He wasn't McFoley. He was just that guy that every guy wanted to be someday. And that's what, you know, he really changed the course of the Monday Night Wars. Up next is Lux Luger. Um, Lex Luger, when I was a kid... I remember this in 1985, Lex Luger was wrestling in Florida, Florida Championship Wrestling, um, and people were calling him the next Hulk Hogan. And I, to this day, think Lex Luger uh, was one of those guys who never, I mean, I mean, lived up to his potential. The guy had, you know, multiple world title reigns, but he was supposed to be Hulk Hogan. And at best, he, he I mean, at best, he was Sheamus in a lot of ways, an upper mid card, an upper tier mid card lower main event guy who just never really fulfilled his potential that he should have had. He should have been Hulk Hogan, you know, in WWE in 1994 with the Lex Express and it didn't happen, you know, and it's a shame that you see him now and it's, it's a, it's a tragedy, but the guy wasted more potential than anybody else. I think in wrestling history up next is Stan. <sighs> Sting is such a dichotomy for me. Cause I like one of the first wrestling shows I went to, uh, seven years old, I saw Sting and the Ultimate Warrior in a tag team called the Blade Runners uh, wrestling uh, Dick Murdoch in the Mass Superstar in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I've always followed Sting ever since. He was one of my favorite wrestlers, tremendous athlete, but didn't have the charisma, 
you know, I think that people really thought he should have had. Like he didn't like if he grabbed the microphone, he couldn't really cut a great promo until his later days. His later days he could. But during the Monday Night Wars, he was, you know, an enigma in a lot of ways because he really could have changed. If WCW had booked him correctly, that Crow gimmick was so over and so awesome, he could have changed the Monday Night Wars. He's one of those guys that WCW screwed up the booking for him. I mean, to have a, sh- I mean, he chased Hogan for a year before that Starcade match, and to have a shitty ending ruined an entire year long pursuit of it. And, you know, Sting should be one of those guys that take down the NWO and instead end up getting shuffled into upper mid-card, lower main event status for many, many years during that war when he should have been the guy defending WCW against Hogan and, you know, defeating the NWO. Up next is Diamond Dallas Page. I tell, like, you know, it's funny. I had a friend of mine the other day when I was down at NGW and trying to get me in the ring. And I was like, man, I'm way too old to do this, you know. I'm in my mid-30s, and they're trying to get me in the ring and start taking bumps. And I was like, I'm way too old. And then I thought about it. Diamond Dallas Page didn't become a wrestler until he was 35 years old. He was a bouncer at a nightclub, and he was friends with Dusty Rhodes and a couple of, and Jake the Snake Roberts, and you know, became a manager and then worked his way up. One of those, he's one of the inspirations in my life. One of those guys that I really admire and really look up to, and you know, he the he made the diamond cutter so cool. I mean, he was WCW's answer to Stone Cold's stunner in a lot of ways. We all watched WWE to watch see who Austin was going to stun next. We watched WCW to see who was going to get the diamond cutter next. And, you know, I, I think in WCW, he was used perfectly. And then I think WWE missed the boat when he came over to WWE because I think that feud with The Undertaker killed any momentum he had when he came over from WCW. Up next is the Big Show slash the Giant. Um, you know, the Big Show slash I, I I think people are too hard on him. You know, people give him a lot of grief for you know what he can't do in the ring anymore. But the guy's over seven feet tall and five hundred pounds. You know, Andre the Giant. You know, wasn't a great wrestler. You know, but he was a persona. He was you know, an anomaly in a lot of ways. And that's what the big show was. When the big show was in WCW, I don't know if you remember this. He was throwing drop kicks. Yeah, he was even jumping off the top rope doing, yeah, doing missile drop kicks. Yeah. I remember him jumping off the nitro sign, you know, it's like the dude when he was younger was an incredible athlete. You know, I think it's Paul Heyman once said, big show is one of the hardest guys to book because in theory, in a wrestling ring, nobody can beat him just off physics you know you should book him as a monster that nobody can beat and you saw that for a little while when he was in ecw you know the wwe inversion of ecw in the way that paul Heyman booked him but he's so hard to book for because you know he's just so big and and really you know if you see big show in the ring with triple h there's no way on god's green earth triple h can beat the big show in a fight it just would not happen so one of the nicest guys in the world I think he's incredibly underrated for what he can do physically in a ring. And he's just one of those stalwarts that you can put anybody in the ring with him. If he beats him, he's supposed to beat him. If they lose, you make the other guy a star by doing that. So I think Big Show, people need to lighten up on Big Show and actually give him the credit that he really deserves. Up next is Goldberg. (sighs) Wasted, wasted, wasted. Uh, Goldberg was just an incredible talent that 
was not ready for the limelight when he got it. Because you go back and you watch his matches, he he's like it's like watching Rusev now, just an incredible freak of nature athletically, but in the ring very very raw, and he got winded really really quickly. You couldn't have long matches with Goldberg; they had to be ten to fifteen minutes tops. You couldn't go. 30, 45 minutes with Goldberg because he'd be winded and he'd be wasted. You know, people give me grief because I'm down on Roman Reigns now. And I'm like, you guys don't see it. He's Goldberg. He's not that great in the ring. He's not that great on the microphone. He just has a look and athleticism that is unparalleled. But it was he was too soon, too fast, and he got burnt out on the politics of wrestling and by the time he came to WWE, I mean, it was just, an, you know, a, a run that is kind of forgettable at best. And, you know, the guy could have been an icon. And I guess people still consider him an icon. But to me, I'm going, you know, four or five year run does not make an icon in wrestling. Up next is Psycho Sid slash Sid Vicious. Psycho Sid, if, if Sid wasn't legitimately crazy, he could have been one of the biggest stars in wrestling history. I mean, the guy... You know, we talk about Kane, you talk about big guys that can move. Sid was freakishly strong, freakishly tall, and freakishly athletic, but he had one gimmick. He had one thing. He had the power bomb, and he had, you know, his little catchphrase, and that was all he ever had. The, you know, the guy could have been, I mean, you go back, Sid is the reason we never got Hogan versus Flair at a WrestleMania because Vince fell in love with his athleticism and his size and thought he could manufacture Hulk Hogan through Sid, and it didn't work out because Sid legitimately is, has a screw loose in his head. You know, I, I feel bad for Sid because, you know, he was going to be, you know, the top guy in WCW when he broke his leg, and that ended his career in a lot of ways. I mean, he still gets out there on independence, but, you know, Sid falls in that category with me of Lex Luger where a guy had so much potential and guess never really lived up to what he could have been. Up next is a Heart Foundation. Um, which version are you going with here? I guess uh, the version with Bret Hart, Owen Hart, Brian Pillman, Bulldog, and I think I might be missing something in there. Jim, Jim the yeah, Anvil Knight. Yeah, yeah, the Anvil. Um, I love the Hart Foundation. I grew up, you know, like I, I tell people, it's weird, you know, being a fan of Shawn Michaels, but I was a fan of the original Hart Foundation with Bret Hart and Jim the Anvil Nightheart. And then I thought when they reincarnated it for that feud with Shawn Michaels and, and Triple H, to me, it was a stroke of genius because you could take those guys. And if they were in the States, they were the villains and DX was the heroes. You go to Canada and it was completely flipped. And we never had anything like that before. And adding Brian Pillman's into the group. And I think Pillman's underrated for what he could do. You know, he couldn't wrestle that well anymore because he had shattered his ankle so many times, but Pillman became that unhinged character that Bret Hart needed to bring out a little bit more of the edginess in Bret. You know, Brett had always been so by the book and so very, very cut and dry and straight and narrow. Adding Pillman to the Hart Foundation gave them an edge that they had never really had before and I think made that faction even better than what it would have been without him. Up next is the Outsiders as a tag team. Um, the Outsiders changed wrestling. I mean, the end of, you know, them coming to WCW and all the stuff they were doing made it cool to watch wrestling again. You know, and, and made it, I mean, they're the ones who really changed wrestling, not just from a standpoint of in the ring, but from what the fans do. Because those guys defecting from WWE and going to WCW made us want to know 
what was going on behind the scenes and what was going on with guys' contracts and made us want to get online and go to PW Insider and go to WrestleChat.net and go to all these different websites to find out, hey, is, is he leaving? Is he coming? Is he going? They're the ones who created that whole aspect of wrestling and allows guys like us to do what we do now and, and wrestling sites do what they do now and get as many as much attention as we do because it made it cool to want to know what was going on behind the curtain. And finally, the nature boy, Ric Flair. I think Flair got wasted during the Monday Night Wars because Flair was WCW and Flair was that old guard. I mean, he was the NWA. He was WCW. And as all the new guys came in, Flair got pushed to the background and Flair and the Horsemen or Flair and Sting or Flair and whoever should have been right there at the front of that Monday Night War. And although he got featured at times, he should have been a stalwart and a mainstay throughout the entire battle. I, I think Flair has done a great job kind of transitioning and going with the flow as to whatever company needed him to do, whether it was you know having to wrestle with his shirt on at the end of his run in WCW because people complained about seeing him without his shirt on and seeing the scars and his sagging you know man boobs in a way. You know, to come into WWE and being the, the GM of Raw and then transitioning into much more of a, a secondary character with evolution, you know, and then going to TNA. I think Flair is what every wrestler wants to be and actually be able to have a 40 year career in wrestling and mostly in the ring doing it. I think Flair is the example that people want to live up to his his personal life and outside business aside. One last question, or I guess group of questions, was: is people often discuss the invasion storyline in two thousand one as being a joke? And I was on with you and Jeff, probably getting close to a couple years now, talking about the invasion storyline. I guess I wanted to get your overall reactions to how McMahon booked the WCW and ECW invasion. Um, well, first off, the concept is a great concept. Because it was what made the NWO cool in WCW. To see WCW, ECW guys coming on to TV and fighting the WWE guys should have been the greatest angle in wrestling history. Because Vince McMahon controlled all three libraries. He controlled all three rosters. He could handpick who he wanted to come in and who he didn't. The problem with the invasion angle, first off, was he couldn't get the top guys that he wanted because they had guaranteed contracts through Time Warner AOL that were going to pay them more to sit at home than they were going to get to come to WWE. And I understand that because, you know, if, if you're telling me my contract is $3 million to sit at home and do nothing, or I can give up that contract and make a million five and actually have to work, I'm staying at home. The problem with the angle was, for one, you had Vince McMahon all of a sudden trying to be the good guy after seeing him for six years as being the villain, fans didn't really want to root for him. So seeing him on the side of WWE didn't make a lot of sense because there wasn't anything else you could do because you had to have a reason why WCW and ECW was invading you. And then to not have the best stars available, you know, to use in that invasion angle is bad. And then the problem was also you kept having the WWE guys beat down the WCW and ECW guys at every single pay-per-view, the WWE guys are winning. And then to have Stone Cold jump the WCW or, you know, to have Kurt Angle jump, 
you know, it didn't make a lot of sense. And as wrestling fans, you know, WWE tends to think that we have short-term memories, but guys like you and me and Jeff Peck and Eric Gargiulo, we have very long memories and we remember every single detail and it didn't make a lot of sense. And that's why fans were getting fed up with it so quickly. And I think that's why they ended it way sooner than they probably should have, because that thing should have been a civil war that lasted a year at least. And it lasted what, four or five months at best. And by the end of it, it was falling apart and it had become a joke in a lot of ways. And really that was about the time I actually tuned out of wrestling for about a year because of that invasion angle. Do you think the WWF should have had WCW as its own brand and kept them separate? Because I know during the during that time they had I think WWF access on Saturday nights for two hours or something like that, which is kind of like the Tuesday night Titans or whatever during back in the day the just a talk show, plugging plugging away and plugging away what happened the week before. Do you think the WWF should have gave WCW that time slot and? build up the WCW superstars to the WWF audience and you know, give them new new undercard guys that haven't debuted on the WWF until they got time to sign guys like th- that they did, like Goldberg, Scott Steiner, the NWO, Eric Bischoff, and so on. Do you think they should have had the WCW brand for like a year or two to help, you know, d- help the WWF fans know who these guys are and sign those big guys to have a legit invasion see i think you know what i would have done and this is just me being an amateur booker is i would have had those guys kind of come in and take over smackdown you know and then make smackdown and you don't have to call you didn't have to call it wcw you didn't have to call it ecw you know anything like that you could have given it a different moniker or whatever but you know keep them separate you know have have those guys come in take over smackdown make that their show and then you have your wwe guys on raw and then you build that up over the course of six months to eight months. And then at WrestleMania, after building these guys up for so many months, you could have had that one great WrestleMania where you see, you know, these WCW, ECW guys taking on the WWE guys for control of the company and make that like, you know, I'm a, I don't know about you. I'm a huge comic book fan. And one of my favorite comic book storylines was the Marvel Civil Wars where you had Iron Man fighting Captain America. You could have had the same exact thing, you know, between WCW and ECW. And it would have given you time for maybe some of these guys' contracts to run out and bring in, you know, Goldberg and Scott Hall and Kevin Nash and put them on that SmackDown brand and build it up for that WrestleMania. And we could have had end up having Goldberg versus Stone Cold or, you know, you know, The Rock versus Kevin Nash or Rock versus Hogan, which we ended up getting anyway. But you could have built it up separately and then after that WrestleMania merged it all back together. And I think that would have been a much better storyline than what we ended up getting because you just kept seeing these WCW guys get destroyed because your Diamond Dallas Page, and this is, I go back to what you talked, you you asked me about him earlier. Diamond Dallas Page was one of the biggest stars in WCW, and he got put into a crappy storyline with The Undertaker. Undertaker did not make him look good in any of their matches. And right after that, he was done. I mean, it was, he was still around, but as a credible main event talent, he was done. And you couldn't, uh, the guy was in his, at that point, late 40s. You didn't have time to tear him down to rebuild him back up, like which is the WWE way. And he was done. And I think they wasted a lot of credible WCW guys by the way that invasion angle went down. Yeah, I guess uh, that's pretty much, you know, we're pretty much at the end of uh, the invasion 
storyline, Monday Night Wars, and all that, I guess. Do you have any overall thoughts on how the Monday Night War went down and how poorly the invasion happened? (coughs) Well, to me, the best thing about the Monday Night Wars was, you know, just that constant competition. You know, it it was the Yankees versus the Red Sox. It's, you know, Ohio State versus Michigan. You know, it's all the great rivalry was tied into that because – you, it was must see TV. I mean, it, and I don't. I remember being a kid and having and, and flipping back and forth constantly because you didn't have TiVo, you didn't have the internet to go back and catch past episodes. You had to sit there and, and try and pick and choose which one you're going to watch. And then every now that you'd miss something, you're like, "Damn it, why did I miss that?" And so you'd watch a little bit longer on this channel, and then you'd miss something on the other channel, and you'd just get mad at yourself. And it was fun and frustrating at the same time. And then to see the path that WCW went down when. WCW had more talent than WWE and they wasted it and they blew it. And you just saw it coming week after week after week. And to the end of it, when you're like, you know, the whole, even like the millionaires club versus the new blood should have been a great storyline, but they screwed that up because of the contracts, everything else. And then to see it come to an end was sad. And, And the way it ended, you know, to actually see Vince McMahon buy out WCW and, and see Shane McMahon on Nitro and to see the simulcast going on between the two shows, you know, was was really, really sad in a lot of ways because you knew it was the end of an era. And even when they tried to revamp it up with the invasion storyline, you know, I, I, I didn't want to see Stone Cold versus Rhino. You know, I want to see Stone Cold and Goldberg or Stone Cold and Hogan. You know, I want to see that stuff. What we got was, you know, a poor facsimile of what the invasion angle should have been. And for a lot of wrestling fans, the end of the Monday night wars was the end of their wrestling fandom. So I guess yeah, we might as well go into plugs for the show. I guess. Yeah. How can viewers, listeners of main event status radio get a hold of you, captain, if they already don't follow you? Well, you can hit me up on Twitter at captain OMG. Um, most pay-per-views and Monday nights, I'll be online live tweeting and you can follow along or, you know, tell me I'm an tell me I'm an idiot or you know whatever. Uh, you can add me on Facebook, Captain Obvious 3D, uh, and then you can download our podcast, The Still Real to the Show, through WrestleChat.net, TWF News, uh, TheBowerShow.com. Um, you can also check us out. I think we're still linked to CamelClutchBlog.com, also TheIndieCorner.com, um, WrestlingsLastHope.com. So we're out there. We're about. You can check us out, and then also. If you add me on Facebook, be sure to check out the pictures that we get from NGW Wrestling where I am the new uh, bad guy broadcaster, and uh, my job is to piss everybody off, and I do a pretty good job of it, so be sure to check all those things out. Yeah, because you, you used to also do a uh, wrestling show uh, on your uh, what uh, on the WWE games and uploaded to YouTube. Do you still do that? I, I'm working on it, but like I've hit a, I hit a little snag because my you know finances and my computer kind of crashed on me. Plus, WWE 2K15 is coming out in about a month, a little less than a month. It's coming out of the uh, 28th of October. So I'm kind of waiting to get that to kind of revamp the league and redo it. But it's a, it's a fun show. Um, basically, what I do is I take people I know, characters I know, fans of our podcast. You know, you have a character. I know you're dying with anticipation to see how it actually plays out. Yes, I am. <laughs> so I'm actually uh, I'm going to post a show. I've been trying to get it done for the last few weeks, but with being off work and, and having to deal with doctors and everything else lately, I haven't been able to get it up. But 
I'm, I'm kind of in a holding pattern. I want to get one last episode up and then before the new 2K15 comes out because I want to see how it plays before I decide to switch over to the new game and, and revamp BCW, Vicious Circle Wrestling. Uh, and if you want to check out the past episodes, you can go to YouTube.com slash Shades of Sarcasm to see what uh, me and Eric here are talking about. You know, for and also for me, it's on Twitter at Dirty Dog MES. That's in dog as in D A W G, Dirty Dog MES. And on Facebook, it's Facebook.com backslash Mid Event Status Radio. That's all one word. You can also listen to the podcast on our website. That's Mid Event Status.com, Mid Event Status.com. And you know, as you guys usually do, Captain, on the Still Real Lewis show, I want to do it on this episode of Mid Event Status Radio. I'd like to close with captain's closing comments wow you're kind of catching me off guard here with that because i wasn't quite prepared but I'll, let's see if i can ad lib something here real quick for you you know the, the one of the greatest things about lives is the ability to adapt and change and whether it's something simple as in changing jobs or in you know changing girlfriends or whatever it is something simple or something complex the ability to adapt and survive is one of the biggest selling points you can get in this life and and facing adversity and being able to survive it and grow from it and become stronger will make you a better being. So every obstacle is a chance for another or every obstacle that comes into your life is a chance for another trophy on your shelf. So obstacle comes in, conquer it and move on. And that's my advice for today. Captain, thank you for coming on the podcast. Everybody, thank you for listening. Thanks for another great episode. Bye, everybody. Show, ladies and gentlemen.